the diversions in India are but few. But the favourite and most constant amusement of the great, both Mohammedans and Hindus, is called a notch, which is the performance of the dancing girls. The performance consists chiefly in a continual removing the shawl, first over the head, then off again, extending first one hand, then the other. The feet are likewise moved, though a yard of ground would be sufficient. But it is their languishing glances, wanton smiles, and attitudes not quite consistent with decency, which are so much admired. The girl sings, while she is dancing, some Persian or Hindustani song. The words of Mrs. Kindersley, wife of an officer in the Bengal artillery, writing home from Allahabad in 1767. The music you can hear might sound quintessentially European, but it is in fact a faint echo of just such a song as Mrs. Kindersley described, performed 230 years ago by the great North Indian courtesan Khanam Jan for the Indian ruler of Lucknow, Asafuddola. It's from the first ever publication of Indian song tunes in European notation, William Hamilton Bird's Oriental Miscellany, or Hindustani Ears. In this podcast, I'm going to tell the story of two remarkable women behind Bird's publication. One English, Mrs. Sophia Plowden, the other Indian, Khanam Jan. Throughout, you will hear excerpts from various Hindustani airs played by harpsichordist Jane Chapman, my collaborator in uncovering the Indian originals behind these European-style arrangements. The Hindustani air was a European-style keyboard piece that enjoyed a flurry of popularity in British colonial society in North India and Bengal in the 1780s and 90s. Hindustani airs were short salon pieces based on original Indian melodies with tunes taken down from live performances by dancing girls and court musicians, like the notch performances Mrs. Kindersley described. Their melodies were transcribed into European notation, and then harmonised in arrangements for solo keyboard or keyboard and voice with English words that owed nothing to the original Hindustani or Persian lyrics. Bird's Oriental Miscellany was published by subscription to great excitement in 1789 and was the epitome of the vogue for European arrangements of Nartch Girl songs sweeping through the soirees of British Calcutta at the time. It was the forerunner of many European publications and performances of Hindustani airs until at least the 1850s, from the firesides of rural Invernessia to the cantonment balls of 19th century Singapore. You can see a page from the Oriental Miscellany on the website where you found this podcast, alongside a number of other images from the period that will help make sense of this story as it unfolds. The Hindustani airs episode is little more than a musicological footnote now, but it still reveals a great deal about intimate, face-to-face, -face emotional engagements between Europeans and Indians during the rise of colonial power. And it also turns out to be a critically important key to unlocking what Indian classical music, or Hindustani music, may have sounded like in its courtly heyday long before the era of recorded sound. Thank you. 
The key lies in Sophia Plowden's exquisite manuscript collection of Hindustani airs from the court of Lucknow, which she and Goan musician John Braganza took down from the courtesan Khanum Jan and her fellow musicians in 1788. I first went to see Plowden's collection in the Fitzwilliam Museum, Cambridge, because I was interested not so much in the melodies she'd compiled into her tune book, which were quite well known, but in the set of illustrated loose-leaf folios that were kept with it. These had been identified incorrectly as an album of miniature paintings of musicians. Instead, it turned out that alone among her contemporaries, Plowden had also collected the lyrics of the songs she transcribed into her tune book in Persian, Urdu, Rajpasha, Punjabi and other languages of North Indian courtly song. What's more, Bird had used apparently random snippets of Indian lyrics to entitle his 30 Hindustani airs, Sakya Fasali Baharast, Muchabi Khushnavabegu, Many of these turned out to be the signature lines of songs from Plowden's album, showing that Bird took much of his published collection from her manuscript. But Bird's titles also allowed me to reunite for the first time in more than two centuries about a quarter of Plowden's tunes with their original Indian lyrics. This makes it possible, potentially, to rehear them as they might have been sung at the court of Lucknow in the 1780s. But what does this reuniting of melody and lyric really tell us? Even if we could recreate these songs in the here and now, to some extent, does that say anything about what it was like to hear them there and then for a courtesan, for a Lucknow prince, for an English gentlewoman? At the heart of what we're exploring here is a philosophical question, whether it is ever possible for Orpheus to bring Eurydice back from the dead. For music and dance and our experience of them are only ever fully real in the moment of their embodiment and sounding. Once the performance is over, they are lost beyond recall. All we are left with, in the eloquent words of 17th century Mughal writer Sher Khan Lodi, are the sibilant scratches of a broken pen. How true is this of Khanam Jan's great song performances, the only remains of which lie on the page swathed in European dress? The task is fundamentally impossible. But I think the effort is worth it. To me, the reward lies in the journey, not its end. Plowden's collection, with its Indian song texts side by side with its European musical notations, creates a crucial link between Khanam Jan's courtesan music and these harpsichord airs produced for the British leisured classes, the lamp that lights our pathway. Plowden's and Bird's harpsichord arrangements, viewed in isolation, have lent themselves to the obvious interpretation that they were instances of colonial violence to Indian culture. But if we reconsider them from the point of view of Plowden's Indian language song texts and Indian sources for similar musical engagements with Europeans in the late 18th century, the story of this music-induced intimacy between others emerges as more complex 
less morally certain. And by taking Indian and European musical sources together for the first time, we can reverse engineer some of Khanam Jan's songs to see if we can get closer to the conditions under which Plowden produced her album and tune book, as well as to how these songs might have been sung and experienced at the time. Sophia Plowden was the wife of a well-connected East India Company official, Richard Chichley Plowden. They arrived in Calcutta in 1777 and spent several years in the 1780s in the princely state of Lucknow, situated between the old Mughal capital, Delhi, and the new centre of political power, British Calcutta. Lucknow was a space of immense possibility for adventurous and ambitious men and women, not just from Europe, but all over India. It was likewise a magnet for elite literary, artistic and musical figures seeking new patronage in the face of Mughal Delhi's decline. A talented amateur harpsichordist, Sophia appears to have developed a taste very early on for the songs performed by the courtesans of the Narch sets employed by all the best people in Calcutta and Lucknow. She'd already started collecting them during her first stay in Lucknow, and on her return to Calcutta began singing them herself regularly in public, to much applause. Sophia's performances could be quite elaborate. She sang the songs in their original languages, often in the full dress of a Lucknow courtesan, like the one you can see in image 4 on the webpage. She wrote to her sister Lucy in 1783, I had long had it in idea that a set of Kashmirian singers would make an excellent group at a masquerade. I was lucky enough to have a sufficient number of my Lucknow acquaintance in Calcutta to assist. Mr Taylor was the head of the band. He is very musical and easily learnt to play on the surinder, or fiddle of this country, all my Persian and Hindustani songs. A Mr Turvey played the sitar, and young Pladel played the tabla. It is easy from this distance to write such mimicry off as a blatant case of Orientalism. But Plowden's Indian hosts clearly found her efforts both sincere and affecting. The British Library still retains the official order through which the Mughal Emperor Shah Alam II awarded Plowden the title of Begum for her exceptional devotedness and rare fidelity. Both Sophia and her friend Margaret Folk in Benares transcribed the Hindustani songs they heard with the aid of the harpsichord, sitting with Indian musicians. Keeping harpsichords in tune was not easy in the climate, as Margaret complained to her brother. I have just been touching my harpsichord, and to my infinite concern, find it bewitched. It was tuned yesterday, and last night it was in perfect order. This morning, it sounds as an old harpsichord does that has not been tuned for ten years, very heavy rains have fallen for these two days, and last night the air was so damp that as I played upon the harpsichord, you would have imagined water had been thrown all over the keys. Let's hear an example that suggests why certain Indian songs lent themselves better to European-style arrangements, because they had clear lyrics, regular metres and repeated tunes. 
Chief amongst them was the most widely popular genre sung by courtesans and male court singers, the ghazal, and its related forms like durbai or quatrain. The ghazal is an elite form of Persian and Urdu poetry based on rhyming metrical couplets. Hindustani musicians set the ghazal to the Indian melodic modes called rags. This is Jane's live performance of Bird's version of a four-line Persian rabai once sung by Khanam Chan. Sakya Fasali Baharast, cupbearer, it is the season of spring. When Jane and I were working with Hindustani musicians on these songs, they suggested that the melody reminded them of the mode rag dish. So to reflect and honor this, Jane opens the piece with a short improvised introduction based on dish. Cupbearer, it is a season of spring. Let's celebrate. The wine is brought before us, so pour it out. Let's celebrate. Bring the cup to the lip, clasp the flask to the breast. Your kisses and embraces are as heady as wine. Let's celebrate. Bird's wordless keyboard arrangement gives away nothing of how this would have sounded in its original Indian context. We are therefore fortunate that Plowden collected the lyrics. The album page is on the website, and as you can see, the page is decorated with an image of a beautiful young male cupbearer. The structure of the poem tells us more about why European musicians felt such affinity with the ghazal form and why it was so easily adaptable. In essence, European songs and Indian ghazals have a similar melodic structure. The classical form of the late 18th century European air was an A-B-A form, an A melody, often repeated, followed by a different melody, B and then a return to the A melody signified on the page by the words da capo. You will now hear Plowden's version, which is much closer to what Indian musicians would have sung. The sung form of the ghazal or rabai follows its rhyme scheme, here Mubarak Boshad. The first two lines are sung to a lower A melody, The third line, or the first line of the second couplet, is sung to a B melody. And the fourth line 
which rhymes with the second line, returns to the A melody. Plowden's diary suggests that her chief aim for her second visit to Lucknow in 1787-8 was to collect more songs and complete her compilation. When she finally did arrive in December 1787, all her expectations were wildly exceeded, for there was a new prima donna in town. Sunday, 23rd of December, 1787. Had a notch. Mairead Bucks and Carnum set. Think the latter superior to anything I have seen in the country. She sings the Kashmirian airs and dances these dances in the best style. Khanam Jan was the star of an elite itinerant troupe of hereditary courtesans that traversed the major North Indian courts and colonial cantonments. As an elite courtesan, Khanamjan was highly trained in Hindustani music, singing, Persian and Urdu poetry, courtly etiquette and wit, and of course, the arts of seduction. Courtesans did not marry, but had sexual relationships on their own terms with their most ardent patrons. We first hear of her in the British cantonment of Kanpur, 60 miles from Lucknow. By sheer luck, we have what I believe is a fictionalized Urdu biography of Khanam Jan's life, the 1893 novel Nashtar, based on a Persian original from 1787. It has multiple uncanny resemblances to her biography known from European sources. Nashtar concerns the ill-fated love of the author Hassan Shah for Khanam Jan. They met when both he and Khanam Set were working for a colonial official in Kanpur called Ming or Manning. In 1786, Khanam Set left Manning's employ and relocated to the court of the ruler of Lucknow, Asafuddola. Thus, by the time Khanam turned up in Lucknow, she was already famous in European circles. Her British fans were especially enamoured of her singing and Sophia seems to have viewed Khanum much as she would a celebrity opera singer back in London, someone with whom men might keep intimate company, but whose charismatic presence nonetheless bestowed cachet on any socialites' gatherings, and thus desperately pursued by women as well. Sophia enthusiastically documented all of Khanum's performances at court and in European residences, Khanum's visits to her home, and the extensive lengths to which she went to secure Khanum's songs. And so Khanum Jan's eyes met Sophia Plowden's over a crowded dance floor. What might Sophia's first impressions have been? This is an Indian suggestion from Nashtar. She was a ravishing beauty with a magnolia face and Narcissus eyes. She must have ruined the piety of a thousand men. Dressed in fineries, she ambled in and struck a pose which was utterly devastating. Our eyes met and I was struck by the arrow of love. I became still like a picture and was petrified like a statue. Then I felt a surge of blood in my veins and my heart fluttered helplessly. 
the catastrophe I had been predestined to face was right there in front of me. Khanam Jan began the song of felicitation. She knew many ghazals of Hafiz and rendered them well. Mr. Manning kept asking me their meaning and relayed my explanations to his English friends. They were all spellbound and they too waved their hands and stamped their feet like the possessed. When Emily Eden accompanied her brother, the Governor-General, on a trip to Delhi in 1839, her impressions of an arch at Colonel Skinner's were remarkably similar. He had all the best singers and dancers in Delhi, and they acted passages out of Vishnu and Brahma's lives and sang Persian songs. Mr B, who speaks Persian as fluently as English, kept saying, well, this is really delightful. This, I think, is equal to any European singing. In fact, there's nothing like it. Certainly, the words, as he translated them, were very pretty. One little fat Norch girl sang a sort of passionate song to my brother with little meaning smiles, which I think rather attracted his lordship. And I thought it might be too much for him if I forwarded to him Mr. B's translation. I am the body, you are the soul. We may be parted here, but let no one say we shall be separated hereafter. Sophia patently loved the music of these songs as much as their poetry. The proof is in her album and tune book, an enduring reputation as a singer of Hindustani songs. But what of Khanam Jan and other professional musicians whose songs Plowden and Folk and Bird took and made their own? What did they think of European music and the European musicians they engaged with? Margaret Folk imagined her musicians enjoyed working with her in taking down some airs she sent her brother in 1785. I have often made the musicians tune their instruments to the harpsichord that I might join their little band. They always seemed delighted with the accompaniment of the harpsichord and sung with uncommon animation and a pleasure to themselves, which is expressed in their faces. Indian records from the same time and place indicate Margaret's impressions were not wrong. European keyboards were found in India from at least the early 16th century. By the late 18th century, in the midst of the craze for writing down Hindustani songs, Indian poets and musicians were also writing down their impressions of keyboards and their players. How might Khanam Jan have viewed Sophia Plowden? There is every possibility that she may have fancied her. Vina Oldenburg famously noted that historically, Lucknow courtesans most intimate relationships were with each other. This couplet is an example of Rehti, a racy style of poetry reflecting the voices and languages of courtesans and secluded women. In this verse, by the male poet Rangin, a woman is upbraiding her lesbian lover. O Zanahi, ever since you heard the keyboard play, you have become obsessed with a foreign woman. But musicians' familiarity with European keyboards was not just restricted to gazing. A remarkable passage from a music treatise in Persian completed in 1788 
confirms that hereditary musicians from the Mughal court tradition, probably in Lucknow or Banaras, the very people working intimately at exactly this time with amateur musicologists like Margaret and Joseph Folk, Richard Johnson and Sophia Plowden, had hands-on experience of playing the harpsichord. The Europeans have another instrument of the string family that is most fine and noble named the harpsichord. Every string is plucked with its own plectrum. Seven notes constitute the gamut with five variant notes. You can create the sargam for every rag very well from it. I played Drupadunit by playing a drone of sa and pa, one and five, in one hand, at the same time as the 61 other strings in the other. Let us turn again to Khanum's and Sophia's songs to see if we can cut through the layers of confusion created by successive arrangements and get a little closer to how they were experienced in 1780s Lucknow. We now hear Bird's arrangement of a khayal in the Urdu language, Sunre Mashuka Bevafa, Listen, O Faithless Beloved, but with new English words by Mrs. Opie from 1805. This example shows how lyrics and ideas imposed on a tune can alter how a song is performed and understood. Mrs. Opie's melancholy lyrics, inspired though they are by the fragment of Urdu text that stands in as the song's title, are not remotely related to the original. The Oxford music professor William Crotch, who first published his extraordinary global collection of specimens of various styles of music in 1807, got rather closer. He got his ideas of how to interpret this tune from the horse's mouth. In his introduction, he noted that Specimen numbers 326 to 339 are from a most valuable manuscript collection in the possession of Mrs. Plowden. Number 336 is the song with which the natives charm the snakes. Snake charming was indeed regularly exhibited alongside less elite Nautch performances. In earlier versions of his lectures, Koch stuck to the letter of what Mrs. Plowden had told him. But by 1829, the snake-charming idea had radically penetrated his interpretation of the music. The following appears to be one of the airs used in Charming the Snakes. At the arpeggio passage, performed with a crescendo, the snakes rear their heads and appear angry. At the diminuendo, they all sink down again into their accustomed torpor. The tune quietly proceeds unnoticed.
The only way Crotch would have known that this tune was a, quote, snake charmer's song is from the picture illustrating the lyrics of Sunre Mashoka Bevafa in Plowden's album, shown in image 7. Note the cobra swaying to the pungi, the snake charmer's pipe, but also the tethered lizard and the pigeon in the covered wicker basket. As the title says, this is indeed a fantasia of the snake charmers. But the sophisticated Urdu lyrics of this song in Plowden's collection say nothing about snakes. Listen, O faithless beloved, what are you scheming? I bestow honours upon you, and pallid greys burst into colour. Worn out, I cry out, weeping and weeping. Your golden locks tied up my heart. The beloved called out, entrancing and charming, you bewitched me with your ploys. I brought my confusion into the garden. The judge opened the books. I should follow this path. I might deceive someone else the same way. The beloved's house is far away. The lover is as slippery as a thief. The link between the lyrics and snake charming here is frankly mysterious. What we can say is there are certainly some delightfully ambiguous connections between the arts of seduction played out in the Lucknow Musical Assembly and the enchanting of snakes, if you consider the lyrics metaphorically, if you imagine that the snake is the woman speaking and the pipe and its song are her bewitching, tantalising and ultimately deceptive beloved. With the next example, I am going to reverse our direction of travel and show how we might use technical knowledge of lyrical meter and musical setting to reverse engineer the most popular Natch song of them all to get back to the way Khanam Jan might have sung it. This Persian ghazal is another one with a famous refrain. Sophia wrote to Margaret, Have you ever met with an Indostani song, the chorus of which is Tazi Bat Tazi No Bat No, ever fresh and ever new? It's a very common one. All the Notch girls know it. Sing, sweet-voiced musician, ever fresh and ever new. Pour the exhilarating wine, ever fresh and ever new. While you play, sit cosily in a secluded place with a lover and snatch kisses from him as you desire, ever fresh and ever new. As you will hear, the refrain very clearly reveals how the lyrics fit the melody of Sophia's version. What you are about to hear is a later reharmonization by Biggs from 1805, but with the original Persian words as Sophia would have sung them. It fits quite well, no? However, Jane and I worked on these originally with the Afghan ghazal singer Yusuf Mahmud, and he found the 6-8 rhythm jarring. Persian and Urdu poetry operates on a sophisticated system of meters based on longs and shorts, and as Yusuf pointed out, the meter of this ghazal fits naturally into seven beats, not six. Thus, long, short, short, long, short, long, short, long. 
long, short, short, long, short, long, short, long. Mutribi hushnava begu, taza ba taza no ba no. In fact, we think Plowden's original transcription preserves a hint that this was indeed performed in seven, but that most Europeans at the time couldn't comprehend metres any more complicated than a multiple of two or three. Notice the strange offsetting of the refrain with that extra rest. That's it. Unfortunately, this doesn't work either. The emphasis is wrong and sounds terribly ugly. It is much more natural in seven. And so I've attempted to sing the basic melody, unornamented, the way we think it might have been. And the onus is going to be on your imagination here, as I'm not a trained Hindustani singer. This is a lovely ghazal by the Persian master Hafez, in which the singer's voice, music, wine, the garden, kisses and embraces and love all stand in for one another as metaphors for intoxication with life, with a lover or with God himself. So We have come on a long meandering journey together with Sophia and Khanum as they engaged each other sincerely and with not a little joy across what should have been an impassable cultural and political river. They and the cosmopolitan world of princely Lucknow they inhabited are long dead, and we cannot bring them back. The answer to our opening question, is it ever possible to bring Eurydice back from the dead, is thus, as it always is, no. There is too much distance between us and Plowden's transcriptions and too much darkness between those material remains and the performances they so poorly reflect. For me, it is what we learn in the attempt, in the journey to the underworld to draw that shade back towards the light that makes Khanum's and Sophia's stories so much richer and more fascinating than we knew and draws out the unexpected complexities of this moment in India's and Britain's entangled histories. But maybe something of their musical and social interests in each other, of the emotional spaces they explored together, does also live on in what remains of their songs. I'll leave you with one final example. This was clearly a very popular ghazal attributed to the Persian poet Khachani in the same metre as Taza Bataza, La la ruha sumanbera survi kisti. The translation is by Plowden's contemporary, the Edinburgh trained surgeon, famous linguist, and lover of Indian poetry, John Gilchrist. It is a fitting counterpart to our Snake Charmers song, with its fatally attractive but utterly implacable beloved, 
and a lover shot through with the pains of unrequited love. Say, blooming maid with bosom fair as snow, high o'er our heads like some majestic pine, whence camest thou? And whither dost thou go to kill unfeeling with thy form divine? In flowery meadows, if thou heedless roam, each fond narcissus lifts its eyes to view, thy mouth more luscious than the honeycomb, or virgin rosebuds set with pearly dew. Like some keen fowler, here you plant a snare, and wanton there, with kisses raise a flame, then with portentous glance thy bows prepare. Hold anchor, say, what means this cruel aim? Thy jetty eyebrows lunar crescents seem, in beauteous arches or bright stars to bend. Whence rays like fatal arrows swiftly gleam, ah, spare me now, and to my prayer attend. Hagani, angel, is thy captive slave, a prostrate victim of thy matchless charms. Say, who art thou? And snatch him from the grave to clasp thee, grateful, in his longing arms. This podcast is part of the project Histories of the Ephemeral, writing on music in late Mughal India, sponsored by the British Academy in association with the British Library. For more episodes and information, email katherine.schofield at kcl.ac.uk. The Courtesan and the Memsab was written and performed by Catherine Butler Schofield with harpsichordist Jane Chapman. The additional voices were Georgie Pope, Kanav Gupta, Priyanka Basu and Michael Bywater. The producer was Chris Elkham. Recordings of vocalists Kesarbay Kerka and Gangubai Hangal and Sarangi player Hamid Hussain are courtesy of the Archive of Indian Music and Vikram Sampat. Selections from Jane Chapman's recording The Oriental Miscellany, Heirs of Hindustan are available on Signum Classics and additional credits may be found on the website on which you found this podcast.